0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined again today by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Linné Holdings out in San Diego. We have a tremendous guest on tap for us today, uh, Todd McCormick, who is a cannabis activist, author, everything you can think of. He's got some amazing stories, and you will not want to miss those. And he's a deadhead, too. We're going to focus today on the music side on a wonderful round of shows that the dead played at the end of May in 1992 out at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl, the football stadium for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in Las Vegas. Uh, It's a tremendous show, and let's just dive right into the music here, uh, right from the opening uh, segue of tunes. Go ahead, Dan, let's hear what we got. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show, as always, and uh, that's a great clip to start the day.
1: I love that Slipknot because it's so different. Because there's no Garcia, you know, it's a uh, it, it's a Vinnie Slipknot. You know, it's a. Uh, it's one that you know largely features the drummers and Vinnie. And I think Larry, if I remember, that was because either Garcia had broken a string or was having audio issues during that slipknot. Is that
0: right? It was one or the other. I, you know, we were far enough back that we couldn't tell, but clearly there was a problem going on. And that's what I love about the Dead—they don't miss a beat. You know, they realize Garcia's guitar's not working. Vinnie, I mean the new guy on the block, he steps right in and and literally covered it note for note the way Garcia would have played it on the guitar. And then, of course, by the time they got through the Slipknot, they had cleaned up Jerry's problems and he was all ready to roar into Franklin's. But, uh, you know, Slipknot is one of those tunes that I think probably just doesn't get enough credit. It's the it's the in between, you know, the help on the way and the Franklin's Tower. And, you know, I mean, I guess if we're going to you know compare it to fish, right, it would have to be the I am hydrogen in the uh, in the Mike Song-Weekapaw groove uh, combo. It's that it's that crucial connector. But I think too many times, people just kind of take it for granted. And every now and then, you just have to really sit and, and focus on it. And this is a great one to do it on.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, I remember those shows very well. There's one one place I can say I didn't miss a single show from that venue. The, uh, the I think the 14 times they played it, I saw all 14 of them, May of 1992, and specifically the night we're talking about, the Steve Miller night, a lot to cover on, uh, on this night's show. But before we do, uh, I'd love to introduce Todd McCormick to the show. So Todd's a buddy of mine that – uh, as I said to you in kind of the preamble before we got on air, uh, who's one of the few people I know that's done you know, literally everything in this industry in terms of being an activist, being an author, being a geneticist, being a cultivator, really understanding the, the industry and understanding the migration of how we got to where we are in the industry uh, from the inside. You know, definitely not an outsider perspective looking in, but, you know, on the ground, on the, you know, in the trenches fighting for all of us to get to where we are today and still being here and still being relevant and still having a lot to contribute to the industry as a lot of other people have kind of faded out, especially the early activists that feel like they kind of did their job to get us where we are and pass the baton. Uh, Definitely not the case with Todd. So Todd, super stoked to have you, man. Welcome to the show. It's great to see you.
2: Hey, Rob, thanks for having me on. Larry, thank you as well. Uh, it was really funny listening to Slipknot because I've been to a lot of Grateful Dead shows, and I've never really thought of Slipknot as a song. <laughs> I always thought it was kind of a little me- melody with help on the way, uh, but I never really, and I had to really just stop for a bit and think of it as its own passage. And then when you played it, and, and I, it sounded weird, thank you for explaining it, because it was clearly keys and not a guitar. That's, it. Was really cool. So makes it fun. That's why we all go back. Yeah, you got to love it. The Grateful Dead. I, it's funny. I still listen to it all the time, and it's it's amazing because it was my mom's music. Really. I mean, wow. I was born in 1970, and my mom's working Workman's Dead album was one of the was one of my uh, first ones. And then Skeletons from the Closet with the skeleton holding the album. I can love that. I can't count how many joints I rolled on that thing. <laughs> and um, that was my introduction to the Grateful Dead through my mom. I was one of the little kids that. It was brought to a dead show in the 70s, so. What show did she bring you to? I have no idea. I was a little kid. Unfortunately, I had cancer as had through the 70s. I had nine mm. times between 72 and 79, so the whole time was a bit of a blur of, of drugs, <laughs> but pharmaceutical drugs and cancer. Sure. Or, was you know. At
0: that stage in, in time, was uh, cannabis at all considered a treatment option for you?
2: My mom was a hippie. She first started giving me cannabis while I was going through radiation and chemotherapy in 1979. She read about it in a Good Housekeeping, of all places. They had an article <laughs> I had cancer on the cover <laughs> while she was sitting in a waiting room. And I picked up the issue. It's February 78. Uh, talks the medical doctor talks about it so she brought it to my pediatrician and at that point I had a tumor in soft tissue for the first time the eight other times prior to that was all in bone marrow and his attitude towards her was you have nothing to lose really and so she started giving me joints when I was only nine years old on the way back from chemo and radiation and it would it would help me with nausea it would reinstate my appetite give me a better sense of you know foreboding uh, because you do get a little high and when you're depressed that high kind of brings you to normal so cannabis played a really significant role in my recovery which is what caused me to go on to start growing pot at age 13 and to read Jack Harris book when I was like 23 and that changed my life I became an editor of it in 1994 and when he passed away I put out the 12th edition of his book complete with memorials in it to Jack wow Amazing. So,
1: so Todd, in those early days, were you getting the old Miss weed or were you actually, your mom, just like getting weed out of you know somewhere in Providence or Vermont or
2: Mass? No. The Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program, as it was called, was closed to only a handful of people. Uh, some of those became my friends, LV Musika, George McMahon, Irvin Rosenfeld. Um, later on in life, um, uh, Irv is the only one that still gets cannabis from the federal government. Um, But that was not available, Um, and in 1979, those patients hadn't even it hadn't even been approved yet. Most of those patients got their cannabis in the 80s. Actually, Robert Randall, uh, who had it for glaucoma and was a speechwriter, I believe, for Nixon in the 70s, is the one that streamlined it because he was also a gay uh, a a gay and AIDS activist. Unfortunately, had to be when um, the disease hit in the 80s, and his. A contribution, if you will, was an organization called ACT, which was, I believe, Alliance for Therapeutic Cannabis or Cannabis Therapeutics. And um, what he was doing is helping other patients streamline to get into that program. But I was too young and my mom was, you know, too much of an outsider to even think about it. Okay.
0: Well, that's an interesting childhood. That's pretty amazing. Um, and I mean, all this time, did you, were you able to have any semblance of a normal childhood schooling, that kind of stuff? Or was it all compromised
2: i was in 10 schools before 10th grade and that doesn't include the hospital basement which is where they would bring kids while they're dying to uh get educated which i thought was ironic (laughs) and then um it didn't didn't include any of the home tutors which really played a a huge part in my in my life because uh when i was only eight years old they gave me a mini bike and one of my home tutors uh tricked me uh he taught me how to how to self-learn he he asked me if I was reading a book. I said, no. And he said, come on, nothing. And I said, well, I got a new motorcycle. And he said, get the owner's manual. So I did. And he taught me how to use a dictionary and an encyclopedia and then how to look everything up. And that was it. I was addicted to learning at that point. And I got into, you know, engines and electronics. And then when I was only 12 years old, I started selling pot (laughs) and then when I because they gave me another motorcycle. And then when I was 13, I went to sell weed to a friend of mine who was a it was my friend's older brother, and he had built a grow room. And when I saw the grow room, it was like the color scene in The Wizard of Oz. My life would never be the same. And I went home, cleaned out my closet, planted my seeds, found all the pieces I needed, like fluorescent lights and pots and watering cans and a timer, all in my grandmother's house. And I have been growing pot, minus my time in prison, ever since. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was cool. January of 84, it was pivotal. Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> so Jack published emperor Wears No Clothes um, in 85, right? So like, this is pretty much like you were right there when, when this was happening. When did you actually meet Jack for the first time?
2: Um, January of 1994. I had read his book in the, um, the fall of 93. I was living in Pacific Beach. And... You know, I had learned about um, cannabis hemp through books like Marijuana, The First 12,000 Years by Ernest Abel. Uh, It was the first cannabis history book I found in a library. Uh, I was a really weird kid. I used to, like, leave and go tell my grandmother I was going to the library because I was actually going to the library. I just wouldn't tell her I was looking up marijuana, (laughs) and and I was totally enthralled. But when I met Jack, I, I read his book. I was blown away. No one put it into the perspective like he did, where it was the hub and, you know, all the spokes led to the wheel of life, if you will. And I was just so grateful. I was someone who felt the stigma of cannabis and and felt like I was like less than, you know, less than honorable or less than worthy or less than whatever, you know, because I was just a pothead. But when I read his book, it changed my perspective. I called the number on the back. Turned out they were having an initiative they were trying to they were trying to gather enough signatures to put it on the ballot, so I volunteered. I met Jack that night. I drove up there was the night I met Jack, and we literally stayed up all night talking we became best friends that day we We literally sat up till nine in the morning talking and then went and got breakfast It's amazing and you're in San Diego then yeah, I was living in San Diego, but Jack was living up in Burbank, so I drove up to Burbank to meet him at the time, and that was where our hemp office was hemp stood for help and marijuana prohibition
1: and were you hanging out with the other activists you know kind of like early days people that were in, in san diego then like shay mcadams and rez and those guys like they were part of seedless uh,
2: well the, the seedless guys kind of started up afterwards uh over in ob and um they weren't really uh, super activists uh they they were doing t-shirts and stickers and stuff um i wouldn't really call them activists per se they weren't out at supermarkets with us or on you know a grateful Dead lots trying to convince people to sign our dumb initiative, uh, you know. But they they were doing their part to spread the information, and they used to let us have meetings for normal San Diego normal in their 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 building parking lot kind of thing. Yeah, on Voltaire. Yeah, it was on Voltaire. Yeah, right off Sunset. Yeah, and um, it was really cool. I mean, I immediately became the San Diego coordinator for Jack, and I had money because I was growing and I was helping donate to the cause and helping Jack um, immediately. Jack treated me like an equal more than he treated me like one of the <clears throat> penniless and poor hippies that were hitting him up for weed and pizza. <laughs> I wasn't exactly that guy. So, uh, Jack and I ended up really working closely with each other and and we became best friends from literally January on. We were inseparable for years. That's wonderful. He's a, a dead, he was a deadhead also, right? Oh yeah, we, he and I went to the '94 uh, Dead concert in Las Vegas where it was super hot, and we did mushrooms that time, and our, our, my stereo melted in my dashboard, and we had a hard time believing it. And it was a really good show. Uh, we got there a little late, if I remember right. It was a really good opener. It was, uh, and, and we were we were late because I was with Jack. Everything we did, we were late because I was with Jack. But it was like uh, Stevie Winwood or. Who opened for him in '94? If you guys remember, that could have been Stevie Winwood's year. He did yeah. one of those years. I was so I was so bummed we missed it, but the show was awesome and the mushrooms kicked in and it was blissful. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Hey, I just want to go back for one second. You know, you're talking about your childhood. You're you're 11, 12, 13 years old. Your mom is you know giving you marijuana to smoke. Do the neighbors know about this? Does the school know about this? How is the rest of the community dealing with the fact that a 13 year old is taking marijuana?
2: Well, my mom was a hippie and my stepdad was a six foot five Vietnam vet and he was like a biker. And I don't think a whole lot of people were going to tap him on the shoulder and have him shut off his Harley to start answering their questions. So uh, I, we didn't really deal with that kind of thing. My life was a little different. My, you know, we were, my little brother was down syndrome and we were at my grandmother's a lot and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, and I hate to say it back then. I mean, those between my mom and my stepdad, if anybody had questioned their parenting, they probably would have told them to get after, you know, so it was a much different scenario back then. We didn't really worry about it. And my doctors, my pediatrician, uh, and for multiple, actually multiple doctors, were actually really open-minded to it. it. they had watched me go through hell. I first had it in my spine when I was two. I had it three more locations in my skull, three, four, five. I had it twice in my right ear, uh, radiation and surgery everywhere. I had it again in my left heart and between my left lung and my heart. Um, and that was the ninth time twice in my left hip. I was in a wheelchair for almost a year. Um, and then the last time when I was like 16, 15, 16, I had it in my left arm um in the it would grow in the marrow and then break the arm, make break the bone open
0: what is what are the, what are the odds then that you're even sitting here talking with us today i mean this is
2: incredible well i i've i've been told i'm a medical miracle many many times and uh, most of the kids you get what i had which is a uh, histiocytosis x or um the, it they they've kind of felt it was different things at different times of my childhood because they're only practicing medicine as you know um most of the kids don't make it and i'm i'm really fortunate and i wonder and i've wondered out loud if just my mom giving me cannabis could have been what caused uh, because cannabis regulates your immune system. And my t- particular disease was an overactive immune system. It's like the opposite of AIDS where they don't have enough white blood cells. I have too many. Uh, so my body overreacts to the, like the, the, the littlest of things. So cannabis regulates that and that's what causes it to work for the cases like mine or MS or other things where you have an overactive immune system. So just her giving me that could have been what caused the balance in my endocannabinoid system. and gave my body the ability Of dealing with uh, the invaders, so to speak, that's awesome. But we won't know because my disease was what's called an orphan disease, and they don't actually spend any time studying it because too few, too few of children actually get it.
0: Okay, fine. Unless you're one of the few, right? Then, then then you'd like to have a little more research on it, I bet. Okay, well, that's that's amazing. Look, it's it's great to have you here today. You know, regardless of how you got here, but the fact that you know marijuana may have helped the journey along, uh, I think just you know makes us all feel a little bit better and. You know, that, that, that we're not beating, uh, you know, a phony message here. This is, this is the real deal. And, you know, Rob and I can talk about it all day long, but somebody like you with this kind of backstory comes in and talks about it. And it's got to be hard for somebody to deny then that, you know, in this instance, notwithstanding it being a Schedule 1, it really does have some medical therapeutic value.
2: Well, you know, dare I say, you know, Jack and I first started learning about what we call the endocannabinoid system or the ECS back in the mid-90s, and we were a little skeptical of it. And my next book that I'm writing is called From Cancer to Cannabis, The Essential Guide to the Endocannabinoid System, because what I'm really trying to do is teach people that, believe it or not, your body, even the most stringent um, prohibitionist body, makes similar chemicals to those found in cannabis. For instance, THC is the active ingredient in pot. Your body makes a chemical called AEA or anandamide, um, and that is its, like, basically uh, chemical equivalent. And your body is able to make these on-demand chemicals that balance your your whole being. So what what happens is I believe from the science I've seen, people that don't have a strong endocannabinoid system, when they find cannabis, they will love it. Other people that make uh, these chemicals in abundance may smoke some cannabis and be like, hey, that's not for me because it would be like too much. So it really is an interesting balancing act. And as we learn about it and more people realize that it's an essential part of their, their, their homeostasis as it's called the balance of their being, um, they are going to have to embrace cannabis. So the, it, it, Dennis Perone who helped author 215 back in 1996, was in People magazine. And he said that all use was medical use. And a lot of people gave him shit about it. But it's, it's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, being happy or being balanced, it's, it's about wellness. It's not necessarily just about like, you know, drinking on a Friday night or partying. Like, you know, there's no tomorrow. It's really about, you know, living a balanced life so that you can enjoy tomorrow. Okay.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm glad to hear that you, you made it to Las Vegas in 94. Uh, the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl is, is, is certainly a great place to ever, uh, to be able to see a concert and the dead made it a lot of fun. And if you had the right background conditions, weather or lightning off in the distance, it could really be a, a, a cool place to be hanging out and watching a show. Um, getting back for a minute then to our show from uh, uh, 92 and that night um, and just so many great tunes. It, it was just one of those weekends where, where the boys really decided to pull out all the stops. All three shows were really solid uh, and they were really, really a lot of fun. And it was a treat that third night to have Steve Miller, who had opened all three shows, come out. I think, Rob, did not he come out after the uh, drums in space and played the whole rest of the set. He, he did, and he stayed.
1: Yeah, he stayed, and he stayed through the encores, I think, as well. Um, uh, and by the way, Todd, you're right, in 94, it was traffic that opened, so Wynwood would have been with traffic, so that that's exactly right. But yeah, I mean, look, the, the Dead always had um, some pretty good you know, uh, guests coming out for Vegas, and always, uh, you know, some interesting things planned. But that was the only time I can think of in Vegas where someone actually stayed on the stage that long. And, you know, we can get into it, talk about the things that were great about that show and things that weren't. I, I personally think the, um, that, would, um, the, that the morning dew was a pretty tough one with, um, <laughs> with the guitar playing that was happening on that. But, you know, for the rest of it, we, we got some great stuff out of it. And I think coming out of space, one of the things I'll say about this show, and we're going to listen to a clip in a second, is, you know, Addicts was never a song you expected to hear out of space. It was, uh, you yeah, you always expected the other one, or you expected the wheel, or you expected Miracle. You know, there's a handful of things coming out of space. But to uh, to hear an addict and, um, and, and hear it coming out with with a guest star was, was kind of a, uh, a mind-blower. And if I remember uh, correctly, that was also when they were first experimenting with the uh, the horn sound that they ended up using, to, like you know, the air horn, which about three months later made an appearance again when they uh, did the first Casey Jones at RFK. But the first time they brought that air horn out, I think, was on this night.
0: That very well could have been. And yeah, it, it's uh, look, Addicts is just one of those tunes that, you know, you can go see a 100 shows and never catch it. And You go to one show one night and they decide to pull it out. And this was a night it was so much fun for us was, you know, this was the end of well, it was a really long weekend for us. We were all out there because my good buddy Alex Wellens, who's a friend of the show, was having his bachelor party. And uh, there was a whole large group of us out there staying at the Golden Nugget in downtown Vegas, just having too good of a time. And by the time you get to the, you know, the 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 post drums of the second set of the third day, you know, uh, you're you're tapping deep for that energy to keep you going, and you know, to hear an addict, you know, bring you up out of the space, I I just thought was absolutely tremendous. Dan, can you spin that for us? Listen to that all day.
1: You know the thing I love about Addicts, and it's often overlooked, is you know the Grateful Dead were never known for harmony. You know they, they they tried, they worked at it, and they worked at it, and they worked at it, but they just weren't great harmonizers. And we've talked about this in the show before. We've talked about the bands that were just you know fantastic harmonizers, but of all the songs, the Grateful Dead did to bring back back into the repertoire in the late '80s, and you know really keeping the repertoire. It's surprising that they picked, you know, that over some of the other, like, you know, harder rockers they had because this song is for them as, as who they are. is so challenging. It's like, I mean, it's, it's unbelievably beautiful, but it's a really, really challenging song for a group that doesn't have great harmony. And when they nailed it, like, like on this night, it's just—it's amazing because they get it so right, and it's just such a terrific tune.
0: Yeah, uh, it, it really is, you know. And and it even—I, you know—caught me a little bit by surprise at the end of the 50th uh, reunion when they—the uh, last night they they trotted that out as their final tune as well. And and obviously that they had rehearsed for that, and they—they uh, they, I was really impressed with how tight the harmonies were that night. But. um yeah, generally speaking, you know, in the middle of a show, you know, Garcia's voice is already a little haggard. You know, Bobby's voice, who knows? Phil may or may not be singing at that point. Um, not the tightest group in that regard. Um, I remember the story, you know, earlier on when they brought David Crosby in to some of the early sessions to try and teach him how to harmonize. Um, but yeah, you know, look, it, it's just a tremendous song. And, you know, it's one of those tunes that if you're, you know, uh, uh, at all tied in, you know, to the Grateful Dead and, and their history, you know, to, to be able to catch it like that is, I think, really Turns a very good show into a special show. Yep,
1: I couldn't agree more.
0: And uh, I was
1: fortunate enough to say I saw a handful of them, but uh, but this may be my favorite version that I got to see. So, was, and you know the slot choice, everything else. Usually, Addicts when I saw it was was played as an encore. It wasn't played as a uh, as an out of space.
0: Right. Yep. Yep. To get it mid concert like that, yeah, that was really, really, really fantastic. And a uh, had a whole lot of fun to be able to see that. Todd, turning back to you for a second here. um, let me ask it this way. I know that the country is, you know, kind of struggling with this idea to normalize marijuana. Uh, you know, we have our, our uh, you know, a lot of states now have their dispensaries. We'll have a story about that in a minute. Cause we just added a new team to the party. It, it, do you see the progress happening in a way that's ultimately going to be beneficial to the medical people? I think that too often, you know, one of my, one of the things I have is right. Everybody uses medical more as a way to get your foot in the door and not so much necessarily, you know, ultimately giving a lot of credence to that, you know, to to, to its uh, medicinal powers. So I'm just curious, you know, what your perspective is as we as we advance into a, a phase now where, you know, the casual cannabis smoker is like, well, hell yeah, this is great. I can go down to my dispensary, buy whatever I want. Has the industry evolved in a way that you and,
2: and maybe Jack had thought it might or had talked about? Well i'm an optimist i think that this is really turning out for the better i you know when we were when we were activists we were all about uh liberating people from going to prison and jail for cannabis we were not about protecting profits for small farmers or worrying about people having to go get regular jobs because they couldn't compete in a crowded cannabis market that really wasn't what we worried about um when you link it this distinction between medical and recreational. I stopped using the word recreational a long time ago because recreations is debatable and when you look at the medical utility of cannabis, Um, I don't really think it's about that. I think it's about adult use. And I use adult use rather than recreational because only an adult can have an adult use. And I am all for legalization for adults. I mean, I don't want my cars, my guns, my knives, my fireworks, my cigarettes, my liquor, most of all the things I listed I don't even use taken away from me but they're adult use items and we don't keep them from adults because children might get their hands on a firework and blow their hands off um ironically they're still legal in most states same with guns same with knives we have them in every kitchen uh we just teach children right and wrong so police from my perspective i am all about the legalization of adult use and i'm as a child who had cancer i'm all about the medicalization of cannabis if you need it um But I think that there should be, there kind of is a one in the same here when we start talking about our endocannabinoid system and we all need to have a greater understanding of how it benefits us. Um, How this is all progressing, personally, I believe in cannabinoids. I believe in cannabinoids for all. I believe in access to them. I believe in affordable pricing for them. I have been a cannabis grower for a long time and I always knew that I, as an activist, was putting myself out of business. But that was okay because I think the greater good of society is more important than the personal profits of a few. And the people that were fighting against legalization up in Northern California and saying that it would ruin the medical situation, I thought were hypocrites. Uh, I said it out loud a lot of times. I was not shy about this. I believe now that, you know, when you look at in cali- speaking completely from California, we now have fully legal growing for patients and adults And we did not have that under 215. Under 215, it was still a felony. Even if you had your medical card, uh, you had to go prove that to a judge that you were somehow worthy and he might dismiss the case or she might dismiss the case. Yeah,
1: it it was an affirmative defense. It it wasn't legality.
2: No. And one of the main reasons I supported Prop 64 is because of of Section 903 of the Controlled Substances Act. For those listening, it's a one sentence, uh, basically stipulation within within the CSA that gives them the ability of not being challenged on a 10th amendment challenge in state court because with a conflict and this is why i didn't like 215 it was written so poorly that it didn't create a positive conflict with the federal government which is why i and many others were prosecuted after 215 for simply growing cannabis i spent five of the 20 years that we had 215 sitting in a federal prison cell didn't enjoy it um, but Prop 64 and other initiatives actually were written well and created the positive conflict that was needed. And this is the only reason why the feds are not coming in and, and busting every large farm in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, Michigan, you name it, go on and on and on. And this is what I think a lot of these... You know, I think they they have good intention, and they consider themselves activists, but a lot of them are really obstructionists, and ironically, they take the side of prohibitionists when they fight against the legalization and the liberation of the cannabis plant. So I kind of have a, you got to be optimistic and let things work themselves out, but I believe in progress, progress, progress.
1: And for all our non-legal scholars out there and non-attorneys out there, when we talk about the 10th Amendment... Uh, essentially, that's federalism. You know, we talk about as any powers that are not reserved to the federal government are reserved to the states. So, if it's not something that's directly addressed in the Constitution, then theoretically, the states have the power to dictate how they want to handle that. Cannabis, obviously, is not in the Constitution. So, when you start thinking about from a Tenth Amendment perspective, you know, there's there's two questions that have sort of battled each other for a long time, which is you know, who holds more weight: the Tenth Amendment or or um, or uh, the Supremacy Clause? You know, and the, the Supremacy Clause essentially says, you know, if the federal government has a, a rule. That you know, Trump's what the state rule is, then then their law should hold. Well, that's true to an extent, but at the same time, the Tenth Amendment still comes into play. So it's something that we've been wrestling with now for the last you know since 1996 when Prop 215 was passed, and, and we still haven't gotten to the bottom of this. And again, what we're experiencing today, as I discuss all the time, is still an experiment. We're still experimenting on a state by state basis, and every state that we have is still pushing you know pushing something forward. But until we actually have federal legalization. We don't have clarity on this issue. We just have guidance and we just have um, a passive non-aggression right now from the federal government as it relates to adult use. With medicinal, we do have some protections with, you know, what used to be the uh, the, the Blumenauer amendment or the, excuse me, the, the rombacher far that's not Blumenauer, but we don't have it for adult use. So... We're, we're getting there. Ty. I know you want to jump in on
2: that. But but we don't need that, though, because, you know, the, the difference was is because the positive conflict wasn't created with these other laws, they needed that kind of an amendment in order to kind of defund the police's activities, but it didn't really work. Plenty of people, like myself, were prosecuted, raided, and and gone through the hoops because of it. And and I would even say that we're not in experimental mode anymore because, I mean, we've had legalization in Colorado, Washington Strait since 2012. Um, and we have not seen prosecutions by the federal government like we did against me. Uh, for me, when I got busted, I was—it was a very expensive way to learn about Section 903 and the lack of a positive conflict that we had with 215. I, I really paid a heavy price for, for, for that legal lesson uh, and it wasn't fun. And unfortunately, I think it's something that needs to be shouted from the top of more mountains because people don't understand the conflict between the federal and the state and why we have to start on the state level in order to, to influence the feds. Um, this is only gonna change on a federal level if there's enough pressure on a state level and that's where we're at now. And I think we're going to see cannabis removed from the CSA Probably quicker than most people would expect.
1: That's probably a great segue to two of our stories we we're going to talk about today. But before we jump into those, was was it Melinda Hager that got you, Todd, or was it uh, you know who was it that which federal prosecutor made their mission to to take Todd McCormick down?
2: It wasn't a famous one. Back in 1997, I was living in um, in a Bel Air mansion. I had moved to. I was living in Amsterdam for a year, and Peter McWilliams, who is a best-selling author of five times. Best-selling author on five different subjects, he got cancer and age in March of ninety-six. Started working on the subject, sent a liaison out to Amsterdam, um, and somehow he got a hold of me. I was editor-in-chief of magazine at the time. I got a meeting with him in L.A., and it was one of those miracle meetings. He liked me, um, offered me a quarter million dollars on the spot, basically. Went to the bank, put the money in my bank, let me borrow his car to go look for a place to live. And I found a a, a castle-styled mansion on Stone Canyon in, Beverly, in Bel Air and started growing cannabis. And unfortunately, about seven, eight months later, I got busted. And uh, Woody Harrelson posted my half-million-dollar bond. Larry Flint's attorney, Alan Isaacman, and his whole crew uh, defended me. And for three years, I fought the federal government, 97, 8, and 9, until I was, one. unfortunately, one of the first people they denied a medical necessity defense to. Um, and I wanted to keep fighting my case, so I accepted a five-year sentence in order to continue my appeal. I was a little naive. And uh, went to prison for five years thinking I might win on appeal because I had faith in the Ninth Circuit. Unfortunately, we would go on to have a, a many bad decisions out of the ninth in the Supreme Court, the Rache decision, the OCBC case, and others, and I ended up doing the entire five years, and then some more probation, because that's what the feds do when they're mad at you. So. Yeah, and, and Raich, by
1: the way, is still haunting us, and we still have the issue of you know, looking at the aggregate effect test of interstate commerce versus intrastate commerce uh, as it applies to, uh, to moving cannabis across state lines. Relying on a 1940s ruling that has nothing to do with cannabis and everything to do with, with growing wheat on your property to feed you know uh, to feed farmers that worked on your land. So it's you know we're, we're still suffering through decisions. And by the way, Clarence Thomas of, of all people has now come back and said that you know if that if that were decided today, very likely based on the trajectory of where we're going in legalization, it would be decided very differently uh, today than it was back then. So you know I, I'm still waiting for someone to to um, challenge Gonzales v. Reich.
2: Because of course, state rights are more heavily kind of weighted in this court than they were back in two thousand. Is what you're basically assessing, correct? Yeah, that's it. I mean,
1: he was like, "Look at at the time. Like the only game in town was California's law, and for us, you know, to look at an aggregate effect test, you know, all we were looking at is what uh, intrastate commerce would do to affect interstate commerce of cannabis. As there's nothing to really draw from in the way of like you know legal canon.
2: Two things they did to me that you guys, as attorneys, will understand. They put off my entire appeal pending the outcome of the rage case while I was sitting in prison. So that was charming. The first thing they did with, they they denied me was um, I went to one of my friends who was an attorney to get advice of counsel because I didn't want to break the law. They wouldn't let me have a motion, which was advice of counsel, which showed that I had no intent to break the law. I had sought legal counsel. I had no Distribution, No illegal money, no tax evasion, no other drugs. And they prosecuted me for intent to distribute when they actually had zero, zero distribution. I had not sold a stick of cannabis to anybody. And they, they hit me for intent because it's the only way they could get interstate um, basically rights to prosecute me. Uh, What a charming experience it was. And this is why I fought so hard. When I sat in prison, I sat there thinking, how can I be more active when I get out? And the first thing I did is we made the documentary, The Union, The Business Behind Getting High with Joe Rogan, Tommy Chong, Dr. Todd McCrea, Dr. Lester Grinspoon. Um, that came out in 2008 and did really well for us so well that our distributor asked us to do a second documentary that was called the culture high Um, that did really well for us it was shown in 70 countries translated into 15 languages and um, when i in 2012 i was getting the cannabis culture award with of all people richard branson and Dr. Lester Grinspoon in Barcelona, because, you know, sometimes that happens. And I used the opportunity to ask Richard if he had seen my first documentary. And he said, yeah, we thought it, I thought it was brilliant. So I said, well, maybe you'd be in our second. And he said, maybe. And then the production team managed to make it happen. And he liked it so much, he launched it for us on his own regard on October 1st, 2014. And that gave us international press like crazy. Um, and I also had the fortune of um, Hugh Hefner actually founded the play, who found, how, Hugh Hefner who founded Playboy donated the money that founded Normal in 1970. It was his initial donation to Keith Straub that made that all happen. And um, later on in my time getting busted in Bel Air, I met Hef. And when I got out of prison, I had the good fortune of being able to produce fundraising parties. At the Playboy Mansion for the Marijuana Policy Project in 2007, 8, and 9, and then when I was kind of getting into that, feeling like that wasn't quite enough, in 2009 I went and rented 100,000 square feet at the LA Convention Center, and I held what I called the THC Expo, and I had about like 50,000 people show up on my opening day. Uh, the fire marshals are the ones who counted them because they almost closed me down multiple times. It was really incredible. Unfortunately, Jack died. Uh, the next year when you did that the playboy mansion was that with um rob campia and betty Eldworth? yeah it was campia it was uh we we started they they did it at first in 2006 and they the person that produced it wasn't really the right person for producing it and um they came to me and said would you please help us with this so i got the gig uh 2007 and 9 And it was um, the point of it wasn't the party. The point of it was so that we could call up celebrities and guilt them into being activists. Because without the, hey, we'd like to invite you to a party part, it's really, hey, can we hit you up to do some shit? And they don't want to hear it. So um, it was trying to get them to do things. Like Tommy Chong, for instance, he would come to all the planning parties and help network to get other people involved. But he was always like, don't make me come to the party, Todd. I don't want to stand there and sign autographs for three hours. And, and I really appreciated that. And I appreciated that he cared more about the cause and less about his popularity. And, um, I, I, you know, he's been such a great person for as long as I've known him, but guys like Mickey Hart as well. In 1999, before I went to prison, I actually did Woodstock, and Mickey Hart was the only performer that did Woodstock in 69 and Woodstock in 99, and I was part of this band, or not a band, but a, a group called um, Spitfire Tour, and what we were were activist musicians and uh, actors. We had Woody and others. Um and we would go to colleges and events like Woodstock and speak about activist issues. And Mickey Hart joined us on um, July 24th. It was a Saturday. And he introduced Julia Butterfly Hill, who was actually protesting the destruction of the Redwoods. And... Um, mickey i and rosie perez you know each got 20 minutes on stage at woodstock i talked about legalizing cannabis of course because that's all i ever talk about and um but then afterwards uh we got to go do media together and i got to hang out with mickey and have a great time and when he his band planet drum or something like that played uh that night he let me like i got to like stand on stage above it in this little vip section above where they were playing and It was just a dream. Hanging out with Mickey all day was probably the highlight of my whole deadhead experience.
1: And I love your MTV story about that as well, which I think is super cool. Mickey kind of standing up for you guys and talking cannabis policy to Kurt Loader.
2: Well, in short, um, <clears throat> MTV wouldn't handle anything with marijuana. And when me, Mickey, and Rosie Perez walked up to their little interview tent thing, Kurt Loda came out and he called me by my first name, which was rather odd because I don't know him, never met him. And he said, hey, they're not going to run anything about marijuana, so there's no point in interviewing you. But, but we'd love to talk to Rosie and Mickey. So I just moved away and let them go in, of course, because who the hell am I? And I stood next to the cameraman and Rosie and Mickey sat down. And uh, Kurt Loda asked him, he said, Oh, you're the first, you know, the only musician to play in 69 and 99. Do you have any advice for them? And Mickey said, Well, I hope they brought enough marijuana so they have peace and they have good vibes or something like that for the whole three days. And, um, and Kurt dealt with it. And then he asked Rosie, So you were here not as an actress, but as an activist talking about AIDS. Could you talk about that? She said, Yeah, my friend, he got AIDS and he couldn't get any medical marijuana. And I thought that was so wrong. And he was like, Okay. So then he turns to Mickey last time. And he's like, so you were here speaking, um, as an activist yourself, you introduced somebody about, you know, protecting the forest. Mickey starts off saying, yeah, you know, that one acre of hemp is equal to four acres of 20 year old trees for the same amount of paper. And we got to stop the foresting and start growing hemp. And at that point, I swear, M- Carol Oda just was like, are you going to answer all of these like this? And they just looked at each other and laughed and just giggled. Yeah. And, uh, the cameraman elbowed me. He's like, you got cool friends. And I was like, I had no idea. But uh, Mickey was really cool. And then we went down and got interviewed by a talking sock from Canada who was way more intelligent than Kurt Loda. Uh, it was pretty amusing. But Mickey was great. And I really appreciated that he it, – it, I, I just appreciated it. And now he has a cannabis, his own cannabis company. So he had his own motivation.
1: So let's get back to uh, to Ninth Circuit Court rulings because I don't know if you saw the one Todd that came out on Friday, but Larry and I've been following it. But this is you know a pretty major one because I've been doing a lot of um, work on you know what the uh, the process is of, of hemp extraction and at what point you know does the Farm Bill kick in? At what point does the CSA kick in? And uh, where do you draw the line? You know, and I, you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday when when we spoke just about the show today. And you know, one of the things I told you is that you know like. The the issue that I had to, to deal with one time for a court case was with relation to popping hot in the extraction process. You know, and going through where you know you're you're taking hemp that tests out at 0.03% by dry weight basis. So technically it's not even part of the CSA anymore. It's been removed completely from Controlled Substances Act. It's now defined as hemp, it's defined as completely and totally legal. But if then you're able to, you know, take that and extract it and go down to a crude, in that process, you're going to go above 0.03%. So it's you know what we call work in progress hemp oil or work in progress um, you know uh, hemp extract. Uh, so in, in that process, you know, are you now moving that back into the CSA? And I've made the argument for a long time that no, once it's been designated as legal, that everything that follows from that is technically still legal because you can't toggle back and forth between illegal and legal and illegal and legal. So you know, no one's really had an answer to that. But on Friday, the, the Ninth Circuit came out and said. You know, look, Delta Eight, as produced from hemp, is a legal product, and it's legal for for patents. It's legal for trademark. It's legal for for sale. There is no illegality attached to D eight. And I've heard for the last two years from you know much better paid attorneys than I that uh, there's no way they're going to you know come out on that side of it because that was never the congressional intent. And my argument had always been, congressional intent be damned. What does the letter of the law say? And the letter of the law is pretty clear. That all extracts, resins, uh, everything else that that comes from salts, isomers, anything that comes from hemp after it's been defined as legal is technically legal. So you know, Larry, like, were you surprised about this? Or Todd, did you have a chance to, to to read the ruling yet? I and mean, what are your thoughts, guys?
0: Um, I did read it. And, you know, it's interesting because this is an issue that uh, I know uh, Bob Hoban had been involved with for a long time. And and when we were, uh you know, still working together with the Hoban Law Group, this was an issue that came up all the time. You know, the question of, well, uh, Bob would take the position that you can collect as much THC as you want out of legal hemp and you can just stockpile it and all of a sudden have a whole bunch of THC. But if it's come from a legal source, it's come from a legal source. And that's really, of course, th- th- What I always saw this as being was that everybody kind of rushed in to make these rules without really quite understanding exactly what they were talking about. And in fairness to people, you know, this whole idea of Delta 8 and all of this has come along, you know, slowly over time as the whole extraction process has expanded and the new technologies have come along But I agree with you, Rob, you know, and I agree with what Bob said originally, which is if if we're going to say that this product is legal and that's what they're saying, right, it's not a controlled substance. And it, it goes further in the 2018 Farm Bill. It says all of its constituent cannabinoids are also not controlled substances. So, you know, if you pull a constituent cannabinoid out of there and you can, you know, through a chemical process, release the THC from that. I see that as a problem with the definition, not as a problem with what the people who are, are, are operating right now are doing. And if they want to try and come back and change the definition, I guess they can you know, go ahead and do so or whatever they want to do. But I think maybe this is also partly a realization of the fact that you know, THC is always going to be there one way or another, and, and, and there's no way for us to put a cap on all of it. So, you know, you know, maybe the thinking is that okay, fine, this is one thing, but it, you know, maybe this isn't as bad as you know, selling huge ounces of marijuana for sale. I, I I'm not sure. I'm just happy with the ruling.
2: Wow, I think the ruling is on point. I mean, if if you're making alcohol, it doesn't matter how much of it you stockpile. Uh, it's just how you use it in you know the end product. And it's interesting to think that if if you can make you know hemp that's less than three tenths of percent THC, what happens if you take that three tenths of percent out and put it all in a silo and have you know eighty two million milligrams of THC? Is that now it? it, it It's almost too logical, but the problem with the drug war is it's never been logical. And when you look at it factually, I've been trying to convince people that all cannabis plants are legal now until... They go above three tenths of a percent THC, Um, and most of my friends' head explodes when I tell them that they can, you know, that clones are legal, and they go, no, 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 and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the reality because every hemp field is potentially a drug crop as soon as it crosses over the cannabinoid line, and that's only if they test it. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Exactly
1: right. And that's I've told people all the time that. that the bright line distinction happens, you know, at any moment where you cross that threshold, even if you've got the, the hemp license, if you can produce by, right. you know, the agricultural department of your state, that's that's legal up until the moment it crosses 003 percent by dry weight basis. Right. So it's, you know, I remember back in 2020 when um, when, you know, Bob Hoban and Rod Kite and Sean Hauser from Vicente Siegerberg were suing the Hemp Industry Association um, on behalf of the Hemp Industry Association against the DEA. And I, I basically had turned in the, the paperwork that I'd done on that, and I got a tremendous amount of positive response, specifically from Rod Kite, going, this is fantastic work. You know, like, and they're talking about having me write an amicus brief at the time to uh, to submit, you know, on this topic, because, you know, the research I was doing in a, in a different case, which related to uh, to work-in-progress hemp oil, was 100% on point. And I, I went back and, and, and thoroughly researched it. So, like, I, I'm delighted that this is where the Ninth Circuit's coming out on this. But what I will say is, What a monkey wrench this could throw into the legal cannabis industry as a result.
2: It almost makes it, it almost makes the cab in all parts of the plant. Actually, it's not all parts of the plant. It's just THC, over three-tenths of a percent THC is scheduled. And it almost makes it pointless at this point.
0: It does, but the government will never concede that point, unfortunately, at least not anytime soon. And, you know, we
2: I think they will. Because you know what? You're you're, you look at it from this perspective. One, you have all these states that don't have initiative processes, obviously pissed off that their neighbors are making money and they're not. They have Rhode Island, for instance, is one of the topics. They they 80% of Rhode Island lives on the border of Massachusetts. Massachusetts legalizes, Rhode Island does it. You don't think those I'm from Rhode Island would they just go two minutes over the border, grab their weed, and drive home? All that tax money goes to Mass and under Rhode Island. So, so states like Rhode Island are going to have to legalize, which they're are now in process doing, even though they don't have an initiative because they have no other choice and they're not gonna wanna lose the revenue. If you look at 502data.com or org or whatever it is, which is the the statistics for Washington State, they've gone over $9 billion in, in retail legal sales and they've generated billions of dollars in taxes and the states next to them are not without the internet. I mean, they see this and go, what the hell? Uh, We want this money too. So this kind of pressure on the federal government is enormous and then I think one of the biggest assets we have is this case out of Florida, uh, which this woman um, filed against the Biden administration over gun rights. Because, you know, if you're a medical cannabis user and even just a cannabis user, if you pick up a joint, and a lot of people do not understand this, but according to the 1968 gun laws if you so much as smoke a joint you lose your right to possess a gun you lose your right to possess ammunition and all of your weapons are now illegally possessed by you you don't have to even go get your medical card and people might think you're crazy but go look it up i'm not crazy and it and th- you are not crazy that's the yeah. law Yes. And unfortunately, this is a tough situation. because So everyone who owned a gun or wants to have home defense or what have you lives up in Alaska and has bears knocking on their door. um, Well, they're suddenly unable to possess that weapon because they smoked a joint or have a medical cannabis card. So this issue is going to be one of the things, I think, the real pressure point that's going to pull it out, especially with all of the conservative uh, Republican right-wing support that cannabis is now getting, just because it's a real realistic potential for making money. Of course. Hate to say it, but it's greed that's going to cause the change.
1: I, I don't disagree. And I also think that you
2: know, the more people become aware of the,
1: uh, the, the way that that issue um, is related to one another, I don't think that most people have any idea. And, you know, uh, for a long time, those rules were in place because um, it was perceived that drug dealers you know, that were armed was just an extra harm. So you know, can we create a, a, an additional penalty that was attached to, um, to weaponry being found in a drug bust? But you know, it doesn't change the fact. The way, the way you interpreted the law is spot on. And if you actually you know, have weed in your house and have a gun in your house, guess what? You're in a hell of a lot more trouble than you realize. And there's a lot of owners in this country that also smoke cannabis. So you know, they, they,
2: need to, uh, they need to look at this thing a little bit more closely. And I would like to also point out, I did a, I did obviously five years in prison. One of my cellmates, as we call them, um, was in for a year for lying on the ATF form. And he lied about uh, one of the questions saying that he was convicted of a felony. And um, of course they found it. And of course he went to jail for it. Um, but lying on that form, if they, now they include the question, are you a medical cannabis user? Do you have a medical cannabis card? And if you lie on that form, um, that's a year in prison and it's easily proven. So a lot of people think, oh, I'll just fudge it. <laughs> Don't is what I'm saying out loud. Don't. Um, I wrote an article called the word of warning for grow magazine. It's a magazine out of Oregon. I was writing for for about five years and I, I recommend people listening, check it out. It was, I, re- I wrote it back in 2018 because I saw all these people posted photos of pot, pot plants, their kids and their guns on Instagram. And I'm like, yo, you're snitching on yourself. Uh, And they didn't even realize it because a lot of gun owners don't realize the conflict that cannabis has with gun laws and they should become better aware of it or it could cost them their freedom.
0: You know, we see that with the dispensary owners on the question of whether to have armed security on the site. When you bring a gun into a dispensary, you're creating the exact same problem.
2: You, you nailed it. And unfortunately, the problem with the the security guard is that they don't realize it, but they can get charged with it. And it won't be if the, if the owner doesn't have it, he might not get it. But there is what's called constructive possession of a firearm. And if that owner allows the firearm on that property and they raid it and that gun's found, it's basically the owners. That's
1: exactly right. You know, constructive possession is another fun legal theory that we can get into for another time because it's very, very relevant in the uh, in the drug wars as well. As to you know, hey, if that briefcase full of weed wasn't in your hand at the time, but it happens to be you know in a place that you had dominion over, you know, can you still be charged? The answer is you can, and it's actually a relatively easy case for uh, for the feds or for the state cops to make if they think they can make it. And it's it's re- you know, relatively nebulous as to uh, to proof and intent. So again, topic for another discussion. But you know, Todd, you, you brought up um Rhode Island, you know. So Rhode Island just passed through the state house, just passed adult use cannabis and uh you know, hats off to Rhode Island, but my question is, is Governor McKee going to uh, sign into law? And I would expect the answer has to be yes, based on what you just said. The,
2: yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he's definitely going to sign in. I think it's an economic necessity for them. I, see them. I think they see the tax bleed happening over to Massachusetts. And, you know, let's get real. I lived so close to the Mass border when I was growing up. It was literally less than five minutes from my grandmother's house. I used to ditch the cops on my dirt bike by going over the Mass State line and going back into Rhode Island or going from Rhode Island to Mass. Because when I was a little kid... They would stop at the border. They don't stop at the border anymore. But when I was back in '82, they did. Yeah. So uh,
1: yeah, it's like the Dukes of Hazard. where, like Boss Hog, like, ah, oh, damn, Duke boys got across the county line again. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I had to get to the railroad tracks. If I got to the railroad tracks and got over the state line, I could literally stop on the other side and wave, and they would just be like, God damn it! And they and I could ride away. It was ridiculously funny. But I was 12 and I was on a motorcycle, so you know how much trouble could I really cause? You know. Wow. (laughs) That's fun. <laughs> I got my first traffic ticket on uh, doing 70 on a sidewalk when I was 12 on my motorcycle. The the cop wrote me up for like no helmet, no headlight, no tail light, no. He wrote me up for everything, and I had to go to court for it. And everything it was yeah. crazy. There's a
1: whole area like around like Woonsocket and Attleboro, you know, where you can be back and forth. Those they just interweave across the uh, the, the borders, back and forth between the two. That's exactly where I was. Attleboro is on the other
2: side of Pawtucket. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, I caught Dylan in the dead in mass. Massachusetts in 86. That was such a great show. Uh, that was at the Worcester stadium. Uh, it was like an outdoor venue. It was really awesome. Um, that was a treat. I feel like that was a great tour. Definitely a great yeah, tour. That was, that was, I went all, I was there all three days, but I only went in one of the nights cause, uh, I liked being out in the parking lot as much as I liked being in the show. Sometimes initially when I started going, I didn't even go in the show. For probably the first couple years, you know?
1: Well, you were 16 then, right? So as a 16-year-old, there's like magic in the parking lot of like, what the hell is this? Like, it's as exciting being in a lot as it was being in the show. Even if you didn't understand the music, you understood the circus. You know, you knew something something was going on that was different in magic.
2: Well... I grew up listening to the album, so I really loved, you know, Workman's Dead and Skeletons and stuff. It was like I, I dug it, but but when I got to the parking lot, I was summer of '83, Providence. I was 13. Uh, it was like it was it was actually summer of '84. It was it was I was 13. It, he it was amazing because like I remember just being so enamored with the people and the, the 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 vibe and like what was happening and the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and like everything was just so like. I don't know, man. It was like meeting, it was like meeting your people, man. It was weird. It was like, I didn't expect it to happen and I didn't want to leave. And uh it was crazy. And like, you know, I remember telling my friends the next day, they were like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going back to the parking lot. And they're like, the fuck? You're gonna go hang out in a parking lot, and I was like, "You don't get it. You should come."
0: <laughs> I've been here so long, I've got to call it at home. It's the greatest parking lot in the world. It is, you know, and and it, it's it's as much as part of the uh, the experience as anything else. And you know, that's a great way to describe it. And I kind of liking it, you know to adults who walk into a dispensary for the first time, right? And you see something. It's like, wow, look at all of this. But the beauty of the Dead uh, parking lot was that there was this element of, you know, rebelliousness to it, right? They all the cops were standing around. They all knew what was going on, but in most cities, they just let it go. And and you know, I, I remember taking my my oldest son to his first concert. He said, "Dad, lights go off, everybody starts smoking. What about all these police officers?" I'm like, "It's when you enter the world of the Grateful Dead. There's this little magic area, and as long as." you stay inside the borders you could smoke
2: you know it's true you know sadly though you know in 83 84 it was kind of before they really started you know operation dead end and preying upon us you know by the late 80s uh i you know it was you know it it it, when i look back at history now i think we should all be enraged because what they did to us was so hypocritical and you know paul Krausman used to call it the war on and he put in parentheses some drugs because alcohol and pharmaceuticals totally okay but but your acid and your weed and your hash we're going to cut your head off and it's just so wrong and they like tortured us they locked up you know people for pointing you know there was a story about a girl that an undercover said hey nowhere you get some lsd and somebody had walked by her saying trips and she pointed at the person they went and made a sale came back and arrested her for pointing at the person and it's like they really, really, really destroyed so many lives, and I'm grateful we made it through And It's kind of funny sitting here with you guys because I used to walk around high as fuck, thinking, "What are these people going to amount to?" And you're both attorneys, and I think that's really funny to think that you both grow up to be attorneys of all the things I wouldn't have expected from a couple of grateful deadheads. I won't hold it against you.
0: Let me just tell you something: <laughs> you, you have no idea. You have no idea how many attorneys are deadheads. A lot. A lot of attorneys. Oh, I do. <laughs> oh, I
1: don't think you have any idea how many people became attorneys because of what we saw in the Grateful Dead lot and how outraged we were by what we learned. Like, you know, my motivation to go into law school was, was the tyranny of the drug war and watching so many of my friends get popped. And I, I did the same shit they did, right? And the difference was, like, I didn't get caught, right? And because I didn't get caught, like... Boom! All of a sudden, I'm elevated to this different class of of, of citizenship. Even though, like everything I do is exactly the same. And quite honestly. I grew up in a way that, you know, had I gotten popped, like I wasn't going to lose my ability to, if, or let's say if I did lose my ability to get a federal Stafford loan or a Pell grant, it wasn't going to necessarily affect me because, you know, I came from a family that could afford college, right? And I looked at the uh, the, the, the way that this was just separating people out and I looked at like the racist nature of the drug war and I looked at the, the socioeconomic um, impact of the drug war and I got so outraged I finally was like, look, like... I, I can sit here and go to like all these different rallies. I can, you know, sit there and fight for Prop 215 in California, like I did, you know, and fight for like passage of, of different like laws. It didn't mean shit until I actually had the, uh, the, the well, I shouldn't say that because you've been a prime example of that it did mean shit. But I knew that my voice would be that much stronger if I was able to sit there and say, like, you know, look, I understand the lie, I understand the issues, I understand what, what I can and can't do. And I can apply it to try to, you know, fight this thing better than I could fight it, you know, without. So it's like, and I know a lot of other guys that feel the same way. And that's kind of like how we end up, yeah, Larry Michigan, that, that we got to this point. But, you know, like, look, man, with, without without the people, and you and I talked about this yesterday, they were willing to absolutely fully stick their necks out, like put their liberty on the line and do it in a way that was vocal. And whether it's you or Dennis Perrone or, or, um, or, or, uh, t- t- like, uh, Got a thousand other people that you know were in the 1996 days like uh, the people that started Wham uh, uh, started you know, Valerie Correll Mike Valerie, Valerie thank you yeah Valerie and Mike Correll yeah exactly you know like these are these are people that you know but for their their involvement we wouldn't be here today and I think it's lost some people and I think it's lost some people like what Northern California like you know rebels and outlaws did to to allow for the proliferation of you know weed going across the country that you know like. It makes me sick, man. I had a long talk. And you you obviously, Todd, you know Betty Aldworth, I'm sure, pretty well. And Betty and I have, you know, for years been really good friends. And I sat with her in Vegas like three years ago. and We sat on the balcony one night and had like a heart-to-heart where I was, you know, she's like, what do you think? And I was like, and sometimes I'm sick to my stomach of what we've created and helped, you know, fight for because I never wanted to become this but on the other side, to your point, I'm also optimistic that I'd rather have this than that. You know, it's like, my choice is incarceration versus, like, a massive, like, industry that I know soon will be taken over by, you know, alcohol companies and tobacco companies. But as long as there's still, like, you know, mom and pops that can survive in this industry and still do it, and people can do it without risking their liberty in the process, and kids can still go to college without fear of losing their grants, you know, then then ultimately what we've done is, is to me, a very positive thing, despite the fact that it might not be the – it hasn't taken the form or the shape well, that I you
2: to be the devil's advocate of that, I'll say, you know, home growing's where it's at. And realistically, you know, what we were really all fighting for was the liberty to grow flour. And it's really not about corporations and stuff. I, I, I go to farmers markets. I support organic farmers for food and stuff. I also don't believe broccoli should cost $1,600 a pound, even if it's organic. And I am also grateful for the supermarkets. I mean, let's get real. Uh, I do not want to pay, you know, thousands of dollars for a pound of flowers. um, And and I think it's rather ridiculous. And I think part of the problem with the mom and pop argument is that um, these people need to start learning how to do their math going forwards instead of backwards. For the longest time, they never understood their cost of production because they didn't have to because what they were selling it for was so... um, obnoxiously higher than what it was costing them to grow it. If they didn't get busted, it was all gravy. If they did get busted, and I never got busted until I was an activist, until I was publicly putting my ass out there, I never got caught. Um, But at the same time, I wasn't trying to hide what I was doing when I started working with Jack going forward. I was literally never trying to hide it, it, it at all. But that said... I think that we need to see cannabis at a realistic price structure and people that want to grow cannabis, people that grow it for themselves and share it with their friends. It's, that's what this is all about. People that want to grow it and sell it to their friends they're not gonna make have to they're not gonna make as much for the pot they grow anymore and that's okay. And we really have to get off of this kind of like protecting the the legacy farmers crap because it's like, no, we don't do that with organic broccoli. We shouldn't do that with organic pot. People should be able to compete. And the only way we're gonna get the majority of society off of pharmaceuticals and alcohol and tobacco and all host of things that cannabis can help alleviate people the use of is if they have access to in affordable accessible cannabis in various forms so so realistically i think the change has to be embraced and and you know it may sound like i'm like yay yeah, yay yeah, corporate cannabis and i am Because realistically, that's the only way we're going to see, you know, jars of it at the supermarket, at a, you know, Campbell's cannabis for 89 cents an ounce, if you will. And at the same time, it's not going to stop my neighbor from growing the best stuff I've ever smoked and giving me a little or selling me a little at a reasonable rate. And that's what I think the future should look like. Uh, At least that's what I, I... that's what I hope for in my little stoned heart.
0: <laughs> I think that's great. And I don't think that's asking for too much at all, you know, and, and for God's sakes, one of the other news stories we're going to talk about, or talk about right now, uh, last year, we just found out that there were the, the sale of uh, adult use legal marijuana was greater than the sale of Starbucks coffee. And, you know, that's just significant because everybody knows about Starbucks, right? You could make the same argument about McDonald's. There's one on every corner and, and, you know, and yet, People, you know, all we do is like, wow, that Howard Shapiro, or he, he's so smart. Schultz, excuse me. He's so smart. You know, look at what he's done here and, uh, you know, all of this. And then you're right. If you, if you look at the marijuana distributor sometime, people look at it, you know, slightly side-eyed and, well, he's selling marijuana. It's funny you mentioned Lester Grinspoon. When I was a senior at Michigan in 1984, I took a debate class. And one of the topics was whether marijuana should be legal or not. And I took the side that said, yes, it should be. My partner thought that was great and he was going to run away with me. I went to the library. There were articles by Lester. I'd never heard of Lester Grinspoon. And all of a sudden, here was this guy writing all of this stuff about why marijuana should be legal and why it was positive and why it was helpful. I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. It was just amazing that there was a Harvard, you know, uh, professor uh, who was who was who was taking these positions i won my debate very easily <laughs> who, who wasn't named timothy Leary? that too yes
2: yeah lester was one of my best friends i first met him in 94 and we really hit it off and um you know he passed away not long ago day after his birthday actually and he's been a, he, he was a revolutionary in this field he appears in both our documentaries the union the business behind getting high and the culture high and it we i have some videos up of him talking about his son who got cancer in the 60s uh, he actually set out to write a book uh, advising Carl Sagan, of who was his best friend, of the harms, potentially, of using cannabis at the time. And he had his entire view change, which is why his first book was called Marijuana Reconsidered. And uh, fantastic. Him and Dr. Todd McGuire, I consider as being the two doctors on the different coasts that really spearheaded uh, a better understanding of cannabis use medically.
0: Well, and then Raphael Meshulam, of course, who had been doing it over in Israel since the 1960s.
2: Raphael Mishulam synthesized THC in 63. I wouldn't consider Rafael Mishulam an activist. Um, when Dr. Todd McAria was working for what became the National Institute of Mental Health, um, he found out that Mishulam had synthesized THC, but it was classified information in the United States. So McAria really became a whistleblower because he took outrage, quit his job, uh, put the compendium together, which was the marijuana medical papers uh, from like 1872 to 1970. 72 which really went from O'Shaughnessy in Ohio right up to the present day at the time 72 for Makaria. and he spent his life blasting the federal government because they were trying to hide the work Ralph Hill Mashulam was doing and Ralph Hill Mashulam certainly wasn't trying to uh, to 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 He's not an activist on any level. He's a researcher. Correct. I would yeah. agree
0: with you that he's not an activist. I just was always amazed that, you know, when I first started reading about him, that, you know, everybody in the United States starts talking about CBD approximately eight to 10 years ago. You know, he was looking at this stuff so far back. And what really upsets me about it, though, and this is where I'm afraid we're going to have a problem with marijuana, right? When hemp became legal the next day, the FDA came out and said, now we have regulatory over it and we've never tested the safety and the efficacy of of uh, infused uh, food products with CBD, right? So they said, we can't authorize it until we do the test. It's going to take us 10 years to do the test. So you get local governments who step in and say, we're shutting you down, no CBD edibles. The FDA said, no, "No, they didn't say no. They just said they haven't tested it yet. Well, how do you know it's safe? Because Rafael Mishulam was testing it for 50 years. In other words, the evidence is out there. We just... Talk about being frustrated and hypocritical, right? No, nope, nope, right. we
2: don't see it. We don't know it. it doesn't you, exist. You know, in California, right, that you cannot use CBD in an in, in an in an edible product if it's grown from hemp. You can use CBD if it's grown from some good shit that's not technically hemp. So it's a little weird in California. You cannot process your hemp into edibles. Uh,
1: That's about to change. They're uh, at least looking at um, redoing the law as well so you can actually now start processing uh, hemp-based products in cannabis uh, extraction facilities. So if that
2: happens, that's going to open up the, um, the sort of the marriage of the two industries. Yes. Yes. I'm excited for it. You know, and I personally, I believe in hemp. I've been, you know, a student of Jack Harrow for so long. I believe in paper and fiber and fuel, and I want to see more people being able to utilize it. Um, when you look at people that are growing cannabis, complaining about hemp farms down the street from their, their pot farm, I say, Hey, forget it. You can't control it anyway, because there could be a 13 year old kid growing some pot next door and his mail would be just as problematic as the hemp field so you can't control male pollen and realistically you've got to learn how to filter it if you're going to grow seedless and you're going to have to learn how to control your environment but i think this is all good and it will raise the quality that people are experiencing as end users like i grow indoor greenhouse and outdoors sometimes but outdoors is you know because i don't really like pot that a bird can shit on Personally, I like stuff that's had environmental controls around it and you can't do that outside and you're more subject to what nature wants to hand you rather than what you put the plant in. So I think higher quality can be achieved uh, for flower-wise in a mixed light greenhouse than it can outdoors, which is also why I think that People who are growing cannabis commercially need to accept the change that's happening on all fronts, and not just look down their lane and think their lane's right, and everybody else is complicating their task.
0: Amen. I think that's very true. Hey, so, before we get
1: back to uh, to kind of finishing off some of the Grateful Dead discussion, Todd, why don't you tell us what you're doing right now with breeding? I know you've got some amazing cultivars and some amazing uh, phenotypes and amazing you know seed stock that uh, you are able to put out to uh, to the market. I know you're you're actively you know still selling. Um, Uh, Some genetics, and I know you've got a bigger plan for genetics. So, can you touch on what you're working on right now? And
2: sure, Um, you know, I started growing cannabis in 1984 and never really stopped. Um, In the mid 90s, I was giving away cannabis at the San Diego Compassion Club, and I kind of, you know, won the hearts of a lot of my older friends. Uh, Mel Frank became one of my close friends. Skunk Man Sam, Rob Clark, who wrote Marijuana Botany, Um, and when I went through prison and I got out, they bestowed. Back upon me, some of the genetics that they had given me prior to going to prison, such as original skunk one, original haze, original afghani one, durban poison, um, pretty amazing. And when I read when I read the 2018 hemp farm bill, I realized, wow, all parts of the plant with less than three tons of percent THC are legal. So I started a seed company uh, because you know I've always told people or incited people to grow their own, but now I can actually. Um, give them the genetics to grow their own, and it's really beautiful. So I started my seed company really in 2018, launched in 2019, and it's called Authentic Genetics, and we're at agseedco.com. And since I did that, um, one of the other gentlemen, who's uh, Seattle Greg, he's the gentleman that sent Northern Lights to the Holland Seed Bank, or a gentleman named Neville back in 1985, Um, he befriended me. Because he'd been following my activism for a zillion years, and he ended up sending me Northern Lights, Northern Lights number five, number two, and the purest indica that he started the whole Northern Lights line with. So I've been actually replicating these these absolutely old classics. It's been friggin' amazing. Uh, the skunk seeds we have, for instance, were given to Mel Frank in 1988 by Skunk Man Sam. Mel Frank put them in the refrigerator till '96, and then rep reproduced them in 96 and then left those in the refrigerator until he gave them to me in 2019. And I got to grow them out, realized they all still smelled like old skunks because they had had no influence since the eighties other than him reproducing them one time. Um, It was really quite remarkable. I still have some of those old ass seeds upstairs and I'm going to be growing them again, but it put me in a really unique position where with original haze, I was able to grow them out. Skunkman Sam has kept it as what's called an inbred line since the 70s without any outside influence. Um, it's the only cultivar or a variety in my my catalog that doesn't contain any afghan which is really remarkable it is it is what dreams are made of it was the unicorn in the forest uh when i was getting the the cannabis culture award with with branson and Grest, lester grinspoon in 2012 we did a spot in amsterdam and and skunkman sam came out And I used the opportunity to ask him if he'd sell me the original haze seeds that he sold Neville back in the 80s. And after he got done laughing at me, he told me to bring my best hash and come over. And then he bestowed upon me original haze and all his favorite outcrosses with it. And I've been really fortunate. Um, Mel Frank is in his late 70s now. And I'm the first person in his life that he's allowed to grow or to sell his seeds. So um, I've been selling Mel Frank seeds for the last couple years, which is really incredible too. I first read a Mel Frank book in 1984. My friend who built the little grow had a Mel Frank book and I traded him for, it was, it was marijuana girls guy and I traded him a $20 bag uh, for the book and uh, brought it home and it re- revolutionized my life. Now the author is one of my besties and, uh, and I've been selling his seeds for the past few years and it's a little kid's dream to say the least. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, I, I feel Really, 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 really fortunate uh, that I've had so many good friends. I mean, even getting busted in Bel Air, you never want to test your friendships. But when that happened and to have people come out to your defense and care for you, like, you know, Woody was right there. You know, no one asked him to do it. It was out of his heart. And it was a beautiful experience. It felt like I was, like, sitting on the 50-yard line of a game of compassion and uh, everybody was really—it's like a Grateful Dead show, you know. It's the Grateful Dead show at a stadium is so unlike a football game because a football game half the audience is like fuck to the other half of the audience. At a Grateful Dead show, everybody was hugging. We were all there for the same team, and it was totally a different vibe. And um, and that's what it felt like. So I've been a fortunate person as much as I've been in unfortunately.
0: You're very right about that statement, which is why I, as a diehard St. Louis Cardinals fan who lives in Chicago, can once a year take myself out to Wrigley Field to see dead and company, because we're all cheering for the same team at that point And you don't have to worry about the Cubs fans spilling beer on you because you're wearing a Cardinals hat. Um, but it's true. Look, I mean, marijuana does that for everybody. I've long taken the position that anytime you have a dispute with someone, pull a joint out, sit down and start smoking it, And that will usually clean things up right away. Um, You know, everybody likes it. They all want to know where it's from. And then you get stoned and you forget what you were arguing about. And it's really, uh, you know, not a bad way at all uh, uh, to go about life. Um, Before we run out of time, though, we got to swing back to this Las Vegas show for a minute because we've got some some other really good clips here ready to go down. Rob.
1: Before we do, uh, as as a thank you to Wade Harrelson for bailing my buddy Todd McCormick uh, out of jail many years ago um do you want to sh- give a quick shout out to woody and uh plug his new dispensary that just opened in west hollywood it's called the woods and you guys are out in west hollywood go check it out it's one of the most beautiful locations you'll receive for a dispensary there's nothing like it koi pond inside the facility amazing like different areas that you um that you can hang out and, and smoke in west hollywood obviously has social consumption very very few things that are like this so you know to a uh, to all the people that are looking for just a really cool new spot, go check out the woods. Go say, say thank you to Woody for uh, for doing what he did for Todd.
2: Oh, that's sweet. Woody, also a deadhead. Woody's also a deadhead. He's good friends with Bobby. And uh, his little brother said the first Grateful Dead show he went to was In the Limo with Jerry. And I was like, you're so lucky. I couldn't believe it when he told me this story. I was like, that would have been my dream. I got to hang out with Bobby one night with Woody. We played pool all night. He played with Rat Dog down on Wilshire. And um, it was when Rob Wasserman was with him. And um, after the show, we went up to Woody's and all hung out, played pool and stuff. Uh, May Rob rest in peace. He was such a sweet guy. And uh, Bobby was totally cool, too. It was some great moments. Such great people.
1: That's fun. Well, it's a good time to segue into a Bobby song. And I think, uh, Larry, you've got a little bit of a spoonful
0: on top for us. Is that right? We do. And the spoonful is beautiful for a few reasons. One, because as as we know, spoonful typically will come out of a trucking. But on this occasion, not only did they surprise us with an attic out of space, but then they turned right around and and dropped a spoonful on us right out of the attics. Um, It's a great tune. I always love it. But what's going to be great about this and and the clip that we have is we happen to capture a section where, uh, the boys uh, decided to let uh, Steve Miller step out for a moment and there's a great little Steve Miller jam in there. And, uh, you know, for Steve Miller, this is, you know, spoonful is old, you know, that's, that's old school. That's stuff that he, you know, had been playing for a lot back in the days. And I think that, you know, the problem that Steve Miller ran into is he became very popular in the seventies with a lot of pop hits and, and you know disco type hits and stuff that were all fine for what they were, but I think it really detracted away, you know, from the 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 the, the seriousness, if you will, of his earlier work and some of the stuff where he was really, uh, you know, very involved with uh, uh, groups in the Bay Area and stuff like that. And to hear him come out and play with the Dead. Um, and you know, and for the dad, like you say, Rob, to let him stay on stage for as long as they did, and to really give him an opportunity to shine in the middle of some of their songs, um, it, it's just fantastic. Dan, can you uh, can you cue up that uh, that for us? That spoonful. Mm-hmm. What a great tune it's anytime they play that it's special i love it it's great when it's bobby but you throw in that steve miller action and it just i mean what more can you ask for
1: well he is the joker right The uh, the midnight toker yes he is
0: uh, absolutely I'll tell
1: you, the, the line uh could have been a spoonful of diamonds it certainly takes on another um sort of another connotation when you think about it from a, from a cannabis perspective because nowadays like i see spoonfuls of diamonds all the time yes. <laughs> so it's a uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 nice to see, but uh, but yeah, man, it's it's a totally different style, a totally different sound. It's totally unlike anything that like Garcia or Bobby would play, and Steve Miller's is a completely different uh, approach to that song than they do. But he
0: but he but he really nails it, and you know it was funny, and I think you had touched on this a little bit before too. Was he was up there playing so much? There's a story that I read that when they were doing the morning dew and getting towards the end, Phil had to go over to to Miller and tell him to to tone it down a little bit so that Jerry could, you know, build up to his crescendo at the end.
1: That, that's, that's absolutely true. And I remember watching Phil sitting on far, on, on Phil's side, looking over to the sound guys and pointing his finger going down, like pointing to Steve Miller and put, you know, pointing down, like turn him down. So if you actually listen to the mix on that Miller's really, really loud going into like, what should be like just leading into the peak, um, prior to the, I guess it doesn't matter anyway ending, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like as I said, I had a tough time with that dude because I'm such a you know such a purist when it comes to Garcia dudes, as we've talked about on previous shows. That it was almost sacrilege for me to to listen to Miller come in and play a very different guitar style on that one versus, let's say, like you know I think Santana did do with Jerry, where it, it, it morphs a lot better because of the styles but this is more of a, an abrasive style, but on a spoonful, it worked perfectly. Yep,
0: It really did. And, and, you know, the fact that he was out there for the whole end of the show and everything, you know, I think s- speaks a lot to the relationship they have with him, uh, the talent that they see in him and his ability over the years, you know, to be able to play in, in, you know, in a number of different styles and, uh, and really hold himself out. And so, yeah, that, you know, just a great day to have him out there doing his thing and all of that. And, uh, uh, you know, really a lot of fun. So that, that, that is a great tune.
1: And we've talked about before, and we should bring it up again, that Las Vegas was such a fun place to see the Grateful Dead, despite the fact that in 1992, like I remember being at those shows and having a, a bunch of sugar cubes that were blotted before I realized that they could weigh the carrier as well. And, uh, realize how stupid I was for, you know, blotting sugar cubes. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the terrifying aspect of being in Las Vegas in the early nineties with any kind of drugs, like I drove down with like four or five pounds in my trunk, uh, from Salt Lake and, uh, and it was like a cat and mouse game of like watching friends get pulled over off the strip, going to hotels of just going like, okay, like maybe not a good idea. Let's say if you're know, driving weed out to Cal Expo or to Shoreline, you know, but let's maybe not do it to Vegas. Um, other than that, it was such a fun place to see shows because you'd leave the show, you'd hit the strip, you'd party all night. You know, you'd be so banged up. The, you know, 92 is okay. 94 when Todd was there. I remember being so hot, you know, in the mornings, like I'd walk out when the sun was rising and it was already like 116 degrees and you're like, you you like feel like you know um, like Chevy Chase in Vacation as you're trying to like get across the desert, and uh, <laughs> it was miserable. But you know the in May it wasn't so bad. June yeah a little sketchier as as far as the heat index. But uh, but what a great place for shows and what a great place like the mountain behind the stadium that if you were high you know kind of watching like you know the, the the heat lightning that would come in and just watching the desert melt it was just so surreal.
0: Right, exactly. No, it, it was, it was fantastic. And what we always laughed about was that, you know, we are like one of the few groups that could make its way back to the strip afterwards. And we look perfectly normal, right? You know, the, the, the deadheads didn't really stand out all that much on the strip. There's a lot of crazy people out there walking around doing their thing. Um, but it was fun uh, to be in the uh, the golden nugget where we were all standing. We'd go upstairs for the midnight steak and egg all you can eat buffet. It's a dollar 99. And on the way out, they give you a dollar in chips and we'd all head straight over to the blackjack table I'm not a very good player, so I would lose my money very quickly. But uh, some of these guys, you know, I, I don't know if they were just on a good high and they caught a good streak or whether they were otherwise good card players, but you could see some of these other players, like, looking at these guys, like, what the hell are these hippies still doing here? They should have been, you know, they should have bounced out a long time ago. But we, we had a great time. In fact, we had a guy in our group who did so well that weekend uh, that he got most of our rooms comped for us. Well, I, I realized very early on that alls
1: and tables don't mix. And uh, you know, it's a good way to lose a lot of money real fast, even though you're having a hell of a good time. So uh, you know, I, I recommend Quailu's and Rufies. um, Yeah, keep, keep those away from your gamblers.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, look at marijuana. It just it cracks me up. They all said the, the the casinos don't want marijuana. Why? Because it, it's federally regulated for the gambling. Who the hell knows? But to me. I think they'd be shoving it down your throat. I mean, it's one thing to gamble when you're drunk. People who are high when they're drunk are just on another planet, right? Common sense goes out the window. I'm I'm just feeling good tonight. I've got the vibes here. Jerry played, you know, Morning Dew. I'm putting all my money down on 18. Spin the damn wheel. Now, maybe you get
2: lucky and you hit, but I would think that most of the time this, the, the, the house is going to do pretty darn well. I think they'll come around to it sooner than later. I mean, alcohol is a depressant and people pass out on it, but... Cannabis, you know, get stoned. Give them coffee; they'll stay up all night.
0: Right, right. They'll they'll stay at the table,
2: making really bad decisions with their money. I'm sure. In '94, the cops came on us, and Jack. We we had a really big room. Jack Kerr and the cops came to our room, and uh, his daughter answered the door, and we ended up getting called back up to the room and having to deal with it. And the cops fortunately left it, but it was. Oh my God. It wasn't fun at all, but you guys are killing me with your stories. It's yeah. I definitely never mixed gambling with my, uh, drug use, fortunately.
0: Well, you know, there were, there were definitely consequences. I I will say that, but you know, that's the beauty of Las Vegas, right? Is that it's kind of a make-believe city. Anyway, you go there for make-believe and when you're at a dead show, it's, it's a little bit of make-believe and you put the two of them together and you know, it's, it's just, boy, I, you know, other than as Rob says, you know, the oppressive heat, which could really be a, a bummer. um, it, it just was such a great place to be and so much fun to be there and walking around and hanging out in the hotels and, and coming back late at night. You know, you, I go, even here in Chicago, I go to see a show and I'm driving home at midnight and almost everything is closed. There's a couple of corner bars that are still open in Las Vegas. You come back after the show, everything is open, you know, for another five hours. You, you can eat, you can gamble, you can swim, you can do pretty much whatever the hell you want.
1: I like to have the perspective that, Yeah. Easy come, easy go. As a 20 year old, I'd make a grand in the lot. I'd lose a grand in the casino. I'd make a grand in the lot. I'd lose a grand in the casino. You know, so I was down there to have a good time. I was down there to party. I knew I was going to, you know, I brought way more than I needed to bring to any of those shows on the expectation. I needed a lot more money for those shows than I would for anywhere else. And uh, I was the proverbial fool in his money, so uh, it worked
0: out great. Right. Well, that I, you know, my attitude is just to walk in, pull out a hundred dollar bill, light it on fire, and say, "Okay, I'm done," and walk right out. And, you know, I've spent my money the same way and just done it a lot faster. But you don't get a, you don't get your drinks comp that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe not. But you know, when you're on enough uh, mushrooms after a dead show, you know, the drinks are almost incidental anyway. For sure. For sure.
2: That's funny. It's amazing how much of an economic opportunity the Grateful Dead parking lot was to so many. Oh,
0: are you kidding? People made serious money doing that thing. I mean, really serious money. It was, if you had a, you know, if you were the guy with the good grilled cheese recipe, boy, you were going to, everybody was coming to your stand afterwards
1: yeah hard to make hard to make a lot of money a buck at a time. A lot easier to make a lot of money a hundred bucks at a time.
0: But deadheads are just looking for gas money and enough to you know be able to get one room at a red roof in to jam in twenty people.
2: Yeah, it was a magical place. and in, uh, in in June, I think it was of uh, ninety four. I was up in the at the Oregon show with Jack's kids. He was out for his birthday and I was babysitting his kids. And of all people, Bob Snodgrass walked up and asked where Jack was and gave me four tickets. I turned around and gave them to his kids. But uh, it was uh, such a good vibe up there. And, I mean, I don't know. Something about the dead lot will always, like, live with me. Sure. That lot specifically,
1: because it was right in the middle of, U of O campus, Autzen Stadium, was such a great spot. One of the amazing scarlet fire that night, or one of those two nights as well. But I remember, like, being able to walk to friends' houses that all lived right around campus. And, like, you know, that's that was the highlight, I think, of, of that spring '94 um, spring yeah. tour, West Coast spring tour. There was
2: like no po- no police presence was the biggest thing I remember. They were so relaxed. Everybody was such a good vibe. It rained, I remember, and it stopped raining, and they went into "Here Comes Sunshine." You know, like as soon as the as soon as the clouds, and I was I was tripping, and it was just I don't know. It seemed amazing. <laughs>
0: They they were always they were always good like that. We were at Red Rocks one year and it had been raining and raining. Eighty four, the second night, and they're they're playing um, uh, "Ship of Fools" and the rain stops and the clouds are starting to part. And we know that there's a full moon in there somewhere. And just as Jerry is winding down, it can't. It moon's up behind him, behind the stage. He hits the last note as the clouds break apart. Out comes the full moon. Wow! The whole place goes crazy. You're like, how the hell does he know? How does he? Sa- I have no idea, but I kept going back to find out.
2: Yeah, it was magic, man. It was magic.
1: So, Larry, I think it's, uh, it goes without saying we need to have Todd back and uh, you know continue this conversation. So, Todd, you know, you've been super generous to your time today. I'm so excited. We finally—I've been trying to get you on the show for a while and sort of ping you once in a while about, but I'm so happy it finally you know clicked and we had a time that we could do this. But um, really, really enjoyed having you, man. So, thank you so much for for coming on for a little while to talk about
2: everything you've done in the space. Thank you for having me on. I love the Grateful Dead, and you guys are great.
0: Absolutely. How do people get a hold of you? What's an email address? Uh,
2: It's agseedco.com is my website. Um, If you need to email me, it's just Todd at agseedco.com. Super easy. I'm not hiding. (laughs) Excellent.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, Todd, thank you so much. We will have you back. Good luck with all your projects. And you're the kind of guy that, you know, we can bring back six months from now, and you'll have, you know, 20 new stories to tell us, and they'll all be as fun and interesting as the ones you shared with us today. So thank you so much for that. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. For sure. Rob, any parting words from you before we uh, break away for the uh, finale, uh, our final music clip, which is the, uh, the wonderful dynamite uh, double encore that Vince Welnick helped pull together for the Grateful Dead.
1: Yeah, not for me today. I mean, normally I, I brief what we're going to be doing in the next couple of shows, but I think we might have a, a little bit of lull as far as exciting guests. We've had a great run the last like four or five weeks of just having some amazing people on with us, but uh, the, you know our our, our our audience might be stuck with you and me for a little while Larry but uh, but after that we've got we'll find people yeah we've got some great stuff planned as far as uh, as far as upcoming shows What um, I will say is you know watch some of the legislation some of the things we discussed today there's a lot happening right now legislatively in cannabis between you know um, we didn't even get to what's happening in Illinois which we can talk about next week with uh, with you know social equity moving forward hopefully but you know Rhode Island legalization Ninth Circuit Court rulings you know the sales of, of cannabis in general. It's uh, it's an exciting time to be back in the space, and you know hopefully we'll start seeing um, you know some more positive news uh, hitting to uh, to keep us buoyed. But until then, um, you know thanks a lot, always a pleasure, and I'll see you next week, Larry.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, this Illinois thing we did not talk about today. Um, And for us here in Illinois, it's really kind of a mixed blessing because on the one hand, it would seem to portend that uh, this uh, 25 month wait for these licenses to finally be handed out is at an end. But given that this is Illinois, I will never believe it until people actually have licenses in hand that say this is a real license and not a conditional license or whatever they've been doing here. So it's a story, but it's a story with a big what if, and we'll have to see what if and what happens to that as we go along. Um, uh, but it would be nice to see them finally break through. Uh, yeah, this was a great show today. It was so much fun to be able to talk about it. And, and on the way out, guys, we're going to play, uh, a clip from the double encore, the very, very end of the, uh, Baba O'Reilly, uh, into, uh, their cover of tomorrow never knows, um, Bob O'Reilly, of course, is is one of the most famous Who songs of all time from Who's Next. Uh, Everybody loves it. And in fact, Dan Humiston was just thrilled to say that, oh, my goodness, there's finally a song out there that the Grateful Dead cover that I know. So we're happy to get that in. But you'll hear the uh, the Dead with the famous uh, We're All Wasted line. And then the introduction into Tomorrow Never Knows, which may be one of the best Beatles tunes of all time that probably doesn't get enough credit. So we'll let Dan spin that on the way out. Thanks again to uh, our guest, Todd McCormick. Thanks to uh, Rob Hunt and Dan Humiston, our producer. We'll talk to everyone next week. Have fun, be safe, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly.